Now please take your Bibles and turn to the prophecy of Haggai. And one quick way to get there is just to turn to Matthew and then start turning pages backward. We're nearly to the end of the Old Testament as we continue on through the minor prophets. And Haggai is the third from the last book of the Old Testament. Just a short book, two chapters, and we're almost done with it now. Tonight our text is Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. Haggai 2, 10 through 19. Now listen to this. This is the very word of God. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you with all the struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month. Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. That's the reading of God's word. Let's pray once more for his blessing upon the ministry of the word. Father in heaven, your Holy Spirit breathed out this word. Now we pray that you will bless it and apply it to our hearts, give us understanding, and that through his ministry among us tonight, the Lord Jesus Christ will be exalted. And we pray this in his name. Amen. This passage contains a message about holiness and uncleanness. And there was a lot in the Old Testament that pertained to these two important topics. A lot in the Old Testament rituals that had to do with holiness and uncleanness. And I don't know how much of the Old Testament you've read, but the fact is you don't have to have read any of the Old Testament to understand the lesson that Haggai, that the Lord taught through Haggai. You don't have to know any of the Old Testament to understand the lesson here. A janitor can understand this lesson, or anybody who's ever mopped a floor. Because you know how it works. 
You take a mop bucket, you fill it with water, put some cleaning agent in there, you take your mop and you start to clean the floor. And as you go on cleaning the floor, the water in the mop bucket starts to get dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. And before long, the water in that mop bucket becomes so dirty that you can no longer use what's in that mop bucket to clean the floor. You can keep mopping, but all you're doing is spreading dirt around, really, because the water has become so dirty. And it won't fix the water if you find a nice, brand-new, clean mop head and stick it in the water, will it? It won't make the water any cleaner. It's no use anymore. It can make your floor dirty, but it can't make anything clean. Or to use another illustration, one that all you moms will easily be able to understand. You've cleaned up your house. You've gotten everything very, very tidy. You've dusted, you've mopped, you've vacuumed. And then the children come in with muddy shoes and dirty hands. And everywhere they walk and everything they touch gets dirty. Right? Well, what's true in the world of house cleaning and mopping is true in the world of ritual cleanness. And ritual cleanness and defilement teaches us things about righteousness and about sin. And what this passage teaches us teaches us something about God's blessing. The, the prophecy of Haggai is, brought, is divided up into four oracles. That's what it consists of. Chapters one and two, there are four oracles in here, and this is the third of four oracles. And as with the others, each one has a time stamp. We don't always have that luxury, but we do in all of Haggai's oracles. Uh, he tells us when he prophesied, and we can pinpoint the dates, and we know what's going on. We can learn things about what was going on and the circumstances of the people to whom Haggai prophesied. By Hebrew reckoning, the ninth month corresponds to December for us on our calendar. And in ancient Palestine, in their agricultural cycle, by this time of year, they would have already planted the crops for the following year. <clears throat> and all of their recent crops, as you know uh, from, from what we've looked at already, uh, all their recent crops in recent years had been abysmal. They had planted much and expected much and gotten little. Their economy, we could say, was in the tank. And people in the ancient world, just like people in our day, <clears throat> were prone to try to think up their own solutions to problems like that when crops are bad and when the economy is turned down. We look for our own solutions. One of the commentators I've enjoyed reading on Haggai, Alec Matir, observed this. To the unaided human mind, the situation demanded procedural reform. The gross national product was insufficient, and even what was produced did not seem to go as far as the producer envisaged. Then, as now, these are problems for the farmer, the economist, and the business owner. But to Haggai, the problem was spiritual. 
The missing factor was not efficiency and know-how, but the blessing of God. And what we saw at the end of this oracle is that the very thing that's about to come is the blessing of God. God graciously blesses his defiled and undeserving people. That's the message of this oracle. God graciously blesses his defiled and undeserving people. First of all, we have God's lesson on holiness and uncleanness. And then we have observations on cause and effect, and then we're going to see God's gracious blessing. So let's consider these these three points. First of all, God's lesson on holiness and uncleanness. The word of God has come again to Haggai. He had a lesson for the people, God did, and he wants to teach the people this lesson through Haggai by him going and asking them questions. And the questions were directed in particular to the priests. Why the priests? Is because the priests were the specialists in the law. They were the subject matter experts when it came to the law of God. And they had responsibility to teach the people God's law. Now, we know that the priests had duties and responsibilities in the temple. They were the ones that administered all the offerings, and they made those sacrifices. That was their job. That was something they kept busy with on a daily basis. But they had other responsibilities, too, out and among the people throughout the land. It was their job to teach the law of God to the people throughout their towns and villages. They were the subject matter experts when it came to the law of God. So God tells Haggai, ask the priests about the law. But the thing about these questions is that you didn't have to be a priest to answer them. Any well-informed Jew would know the answers to both of these questions. They weren't tough questions. This was ritual cleanness 101 for the Jewish people. The first question was whether ordinary foods would become holy if they came into contact with holy food. And you might think, well, how would ordinary food come into contact with holy food? Well, it worked like this. Many of the sacrifices that were offered in the house of God, uh, after the the offering portion of it that was burned on the altar to the Lord, uh, some of the meat in certain kinds of offerings left over was given to the priests so that they could eat. It was a form of compensation. And there were certain holy meats, certain sacrificial meat that had to be eaten in a holy place, but there were others that uh, the priest could actually take home and eat. And he could eat it at home, and his family could eat, too. That's how the priests were provided for. That's how their families were provided for. Now, if at any point holy meat came into contact with ordinary food items, it did not transmit holiness to the ordinary food. Or did it? That was the question. That was what Haggai asked the priests, and they answered correctly. No. Plain and simple. Holy meat doesn't make ordinary food holy. Question number two was whether ordinary foods would become unclean if they came into contact with a person who was unclean. Now, if you have read the Old Testament, you know there was a whole array of ways in which a person could become ceremonially unclean. 
In fact, it was quite a challenge at times to stay clean ceremonially, and that was one of the burdens, really, of the law. There's so many ways you could become defiled, and if you were defiled or temporarily unclean in a ceremonial way, you couldn't go into the temple, you couldn't participate in sacrifices or, or worship. So in Haggai's question, the particular source of uncleanness given, although there were many, uh, the, the one he brings up under the inspiration of God was contact with a dead body. Coming into contact with a dead body made a person ceremonially unclean. And Haggai asked the priests whether a person who had been defiled in that way, coming into contact with ordinary food, caused that food to become unclean. And the priests answer correctly again. They say, yes, it does become unclean. They understood, as one modern author put it, listen to this now, defilement is more contagious than holiness. Holiness is not communicated by touch, but defilement is. And so the priests are doing well on these questions, aren't they? They're two for two, and they are cruising to get an A in ceremonial cleanness 101. But then the real lesson begins. Through Haggai, God makes application of this lesson to the people, and the application is this. You are defiled. God says to the people, you're unclean. And therefore, everything you touch, every work of your hands becomes unclean. This people, this nation, these people, these Jews, lately returned from exile, back in the land, were unclean. And since they were unclean, everything they touched was unclean. And we can take that expression, everything they touched, kind of in the same sense we sometimes use it in modern conversation. You know, if, if you've ever known someone uh, for whom it seems like they leave havoc and ruin every step of their way, you might say about that person, everything he touches falls to pieces. This is what the Lord said about the people of Judah. Every work of their hands, every offering they make, is unclean. Their secular labors, such as their crops, their business enterprises, their commerce, all their work, everything was unclean because they were unclean. But also their religious observances and endeavors. And that, in a sense, was far more tragic because those offerings that they were bringing before the Lord, those very offerings were the things that were supposed to bring cleansing. They were supposed to bring atonement. But their very offerings were defiled. Commentator Michael Stead summed up the problem this way. He said, The temple was to be the place where the contamination of sin was removed. But if the temple itself was contaminated, the people were in a hopeless situation. There is no way unclean offerings offered in an unclean temple could cleanse an unclean people. That's the message here. God's lesson on holiness and uncleanness forces the conclusion that this remnant of the people was in a predicament for which they had no solution. 
They had no capacity whatsoever to remedy it. God says, so it is with this people, with this nation, and with everything they touch. That was God's lesson on holiness and uncleanness. But then he changes the subject a little bit, and he calls them to make some observations on cause and effect. We saw the same thing in chapter 1. God did something similar. He said, consider, you know, think about this. Uh, look at your circumstances. Well, he's doing the same thing here again in chapter 2. He's calling them to make spiritual observations, or rather, we could say, he's calling them to observe their physical circumstances and make spiritual deductions, reach spiritual conclusions on the basis of what's going on. Consider is what it says in verse 15 and in verse 18. That's very much like what we saw in chapter 1, verses 5 and verse 7. Here it says, now then, consider, and that word consider <clears throat> in the Hebrew is actually two words. It's simu levavchem. It literally means set your hearts on this. And interestingly, in chapter 2, there's an additional uh, interjection in the phrase. It occurs both times in chapter 2. It doesn't occur in chapter 1. But this additional interjection uh, has the effect, perhaps, of, of softening the exhortation a little bit, or uh, maybe of, of making it more earnest, because the word is, is kind of like adding the word please to the interjection. Please, consider your ways. He's calling the people to think carefully. But about what? He's directing their attention to the same things he was pointing out in chapter 1, namely the prevailing economic hardships that they were facing day in and day out. They had worked hard, they had expected much, but they had profited little. In this chapter, the prophet speaks of heaps of grain that should have been 20 measures, but they were only 10. Also of a wine vat where they expected to find 50 measures of wine and there are only 20. Have you ever ordered a box of uh, six chicken nuggets and then when you got it and got to your table, you opened it and found out there were only four? I have. In fact, one time that happened to me and I took it back to the counter and they said, oh, we're sorry, and they take the box away. They give you a new box. I went back to my table and that one only had five. So I had to go back a a second time. Finally, I got my six nuggets. But you know, that's just an error on the part of the restaurant worker. But what if I ordered six nuggets and I only got four because that's all there were? That's what's in view here. That's the predicament. That's the situation that's being described here. Runaway inflation, poverty, deprivation, and all of it All these things that the people were experiencing was chastisement from the Lord. He says so in verse 17. I struck you, he says. I struck you in all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. What the Lord had been doing is carrying out the curses of the covenant upon these people. And when they heard of these things and when they saw that These words were a description of reality. Blight and mildew and so on and so forth. That would have brought to their minds the words of the covenant. 
God was carrying out the covenant curses on his covenant-breaking children. But the thing about the covenant curses is that God did not intend that they be the end of the story. God intended that when the curses came upon the people, it would humble them and lead them to repentance for their sins. And what we see in verse 17 of the text is that in former days, as they underwent these hardships, they didn't get the message. They weren't connecting the dots, and so they weren't repenting. Because God says, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. We saw something. I don't know if you remember this, but when we were in Amos, in chapter 4, God talks about things that the people were experiencing. And over and over again, he says, I did this to you. I brought this upon you, and you did not turn to me. And over again, you have that refrain. It's the same thing that's going on here in Haggai. But there's more work here in Haggai chapter 2. God is now directing them to to set their hearts on this, to, to, to pay attention, to consider, and to look for a change that's going to come in their circumstances now. When he told them, consider, he said, consider from this day onward. When God rebuked his people back in chapter 1 and commanded them to get busy on the rebuilding of his house, on his temple, they listened and they began to rebuild. And by the time we get to this third oracle in Haggai, they're now three months, three months into the project. And God has told them, mark this date. Write it down on your calendar. Remember it because something's going to happen now. From this point, things will be different. There's no fruit on the trees, no grapes on the vine, but from this day on, I will bless you. And that brings us to our final point, God's gracious blessing. Those are the words with which this oracle concludes. But from this day on, I will bless you. Now, the people hadn't done anything to remedy their past guilt. They hadn't done anything to compensate for their past disobedience. They hadn't, and they couldn't. That was the point of the priestly lesson, you remember? They were unclean, and they didn't have any capacity to make themselves clean. As a people and a nation, that was their predicament. But God, in his sovereignty, in his loving kindness, tells them, I will bless you. Not as a result of anything they had done. Now, somebody might object and say, well, hey, wait a minute, they repented. Sure they did, they repented. But repentance doesn't undo the past. Repentance is not restitution. And even though the people were finally doing the work of rebuilding the temple, that didn't make up for the many years that they had failed to do so, neglected the work. And it certainly didn't compensate for generation after generation after generation of unfaithfulness in the past that led to the destruction of the temple in the first place. So for God to speak these words, from this day on I will bless you, was 100% unmerited favor, sovereign mercy, free grace, 
The fact that the people had repented and begun to work on the temple was simply evidence that God had already begun a good work in them. Evidence that he was at work in them both to will and to do his good pleasure. And they were working according to his good pleasure and they were doing it willingly because he was working in them. They were already blessed. But he says, from this day on, write it down, mark it, he tells them. The Lord of hosts was going to crown his gracious work with outward blessings upon the people. He was going to change their outward circumstances. Circumstances were going to change, and by announcing it beforehand, you see, he was giving them clear evidence that the good things that were about to come were not as a result of their doing, not as a result of procedural change or societal reform or anything they do, but they're his gracious blessing. God's blessing is always sovereign. God's blessing is always gracious. It has been from the beginning. When God called Abraham, Abraham was living in a faraway country. He was worshiping the moon and other idols. When God called the Israelites out of Egypt, they were serving the gods of the Egyptians. When God raised up David to be a leader and a commander, For Israel, they had been for generations, every one of them doing what was right in his own eyes. God has never blessed anyone because he came along and noticed that they were doing a good job. He never blessed anyone because of their good works or because their good works somehow outweighed their sins. You know what scripture says. It says God looks down from heaven on the children of man, and what does he see? Everyone is turned aside. They've all become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. God blesses, and when he does, he blesses graciously. He blesses the people who don't deserve his blessing. In a fallen world, No one has any means to make themselves or anyone else clean. We are all, you and I, just like so many muddy mops, dirty washcloths, rancid sponges. We're unclean, we can't clean anything, and we don't have any way to clean ourselves. So what can you do? You can turn to Christ. You must turn to Christ. You must say to him, wash me, Savior, or I die. He is the fountain open for sin and uncleanness. Oh, my sins are too bad. No, his blood can make the foulest clean. Under the Mosaic law, if someone touched a leper, that person would become unclean. Lepers were required by God's law to cry out, unclean, unclean, 
anytime anyone came near. It was like a warning to the other person saying, I'm a leper. If you touch me, I can make you unclean. But Jesus couldn't be made unclean by contact with a leper. In fact, it was the opposite. The leper came to Jesus and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be clean. And if a priest came running and said, you touched a leper, you're unclean, Jesus could say, where's the leprosy? Where's the leper? He's clean. That's an example of contagious holiness. And it's the only one we have, Christ, whose holiness is so powerful, he's able to convey it to another the example of uncleanness that Haggai proposed was contact with a dead body. That makes a person unclean. But not Jesus. Jesus took the hand of a little girl who had died. And instead of Jesus being made unclean, she, the little girl, was raised to life. Jesus touched the coffin of a young man who had died. And instead of Jesus being defiled by contact with death, the young man was raised to life. This, too, is a picture of contagious holiness. It's a picture of what Christ can do in the life of someone who has been defiled by sin. He can make you clean, and he's willing to do so. But he's the only way you can be made clean. The only way holiness can be contagious is when a sinner comes in contact by faith with the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we desire to make contact afresh with the Lord Jesus tonight. Please grant that. Please cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. And we pray you do that work in many. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, whose holiness was so great. He was not just holy, but he, being the eternal Son of God, is holy, holy, holy. And what he touches becomes holy. Oh, Lord God, would you touch us tonight? We pray in Jesus' name.